the end of chapter 4 of verse, uh, 1 John as we're making our way through that short epistle, that short letter. And I'm going to be rereading the section that we read last week and then continue all the way to the end of the chapter because this whole section, uh, John's talking about God's perfect love and how that should affect our life. So uh, if you have your Bibles and want to follow along or if you just want to listen, First uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, reading down through verse 21. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an anointing sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made perfect in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in Him. And so we know and rely on and love God and the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made perfect among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. I don't know if you notice, as John's written, that he is very repetitious. Over, you know, in our Western minds, it drives us crazy sometimes when you say things more than once, right? Two times, three times, you know, okay, you're being redundant. But John's trying to bash this into our heads, get it down into our hearts because it's so, so important. Other cultures have it right. That's how they teach, with the repetition, the repetition, and the repetition. You know, as Christians, Christianity is often theoretical for believers. Have you ever thought about that? Head knowledge. There's a lot of head knowledge out there. It's like Charles Blondin pushing a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls on the, tight, uh, the, the, the tightrope, right? Can he do it? Absolutely. Am I going to get in that wheelbarrow? <laughs> I think not. His own manager, however, did actually get on his back and allow him to carry him across on the tightrope. But you see, that's the difference between head belief and heart belief. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. How do we deceive ourselves? By telling ourselves that we're a Christian. Because I say the right things and I, I believe the right things and I, I'm pretty, a pretty good person. The Pharisees said the right things often, most of the time. 
They believed that what they were saying was true, and Jesus called them out as snakes and a brood of vipers. He called them white as sepulchers, all pretty and white on the outside, but they were stinking and rotten on the inside. Do not merely listen to the word, James says. Do what it says. You see, we can't just say we're a Christian. We have to be a Christian with every fiber of our being. You see, we we have to turn our belief into action. James also says faith by itself, if not accompanied by the action, is what? It's okay. It's dead. Head belief is not good enough. Heart change is what counts. And that's what John is talking about here when he's talking about God's perfect love, the telai-a'o that we looked at uh, last week, that kind of love, that perfect love, the complete love, the, the love to the max, the love to the nth degree. Here in this passage, John takes that love and makes it very practical to us. And he starts out with a command in verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another. Can't get much more practical than that. Now, it sounds like a good suggestion, right? Come on, let's love one another. But it's much more than just a practical suggestion. It's a responsibility. In verse 11, he says, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And it's even more than a responsibility. It becomes a command in verse 21. Anyone who loves God must also love his brother and sister. And this, folks, is a great test of our salvation. If we have this love, which the Word says that God poured into our hearts, and if we can love this way, and if we are able to put that into practice, that is evidence that God is in us, because this is not a human love, this is God's love. This is that agape love that He has put into us. Now, last week we began looking at six reasons why we are to love this way, why we are to love our brothers and sisters. Reason number one was love is the essence of God. Love is from God, verse 7 says, and love is God, verse 8 says. And and if God lives in us, that same love ought to be emanating from the very core of our being. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed. What kind of seed is that? That's human seed. Can't be born again with, with human seed. There's only once for that. But of imperishable seed, that's divine through the living, enduring Word of God. So we now possess the life of God. We have eternal life right now, and that new life will never end. So if the life of God is in us, and if God is love, and if love is the very essence of who God is, then it follows that love should be the very essence of who we are. Because it's no longer we who live, right? It's Christ who lives in us. Second reason we looked at last week that we are to love one another is because love is manifested by Jesus Christ. When we look at Jesus, we see that he was a perfect manifestation of love. He was our perfect model. He was a perfect example. John wrote there in in, uh, verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved his Son to send him for us, and if the Son so loved us enough to be sent to come and redeem us and give his life because his Father asked him, then we too are to love in that way. John says in chapter 2, verse 6 here of this letter, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And how did he live? In self-sacrificing love to his Father. And that's how we are to live, following his example. We want to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? First command, the greatest commandment. And thirdly, we saw that we are to love one another because love is our testimony. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made perfect in us. You know, we, we have a dilemma when it comes to evangelism. We're trying to declare God to people whom they cannot see. No one has ever seen God. John writes right here. So we're trying to convince people that an invisible God really exists. How are they going to see an invisible God? Is that even possible? Yeah, it is. John says if we love one another, they'll see him. Because God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. That's why Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room in John chapter 13, a new command it's a command, folks. Command, new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. Three times in one statement. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. I think he knew that this is something that we're always going to be struggling with. And he's saying, love Because we put God on display by loving each other. Love is our testimony. The unseen God is seen in our love for one another. It's the evidence that our lives have been transformed. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we have no excuse not to love. Now, we come to the fourth reason that we are to love one another, and that is because love is the assurance of our salvation. Love is the assurance of our salvation. He says in verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. Here's how we know. Another certainty in the times of uncertainty that we live in in our, in our time today. People always want to know, right? I want to know. We want to know everything. How do, you, how do you know, they ask. And all through this letter, John keeps repeating, this is how we know, this is how we know. So how do we know we're in Him and He's in us? Well, first, because He's given us the Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit. You may say, well, I can't see the Holy Spirit. I, I can't really feel the Holy Spirit. I, I, don't, I don't know that I can say for sure that I've received the Holy Spirit. Um, how can I say that I'm sure? that I've received Him. I, I don't have any physical means to recognize the Spirit. I mean, if somebody comes into my home, I can tell by my physical sense, uh, senses that they've come into the home. I, I can see them. 
I can touch them when, when I shake their hand and greet them. I can hear them when I say, hey, good morning, come on in. But I can't do that with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John 3, verse 8, Jesus says, the Spirit's like the wind, right? The wind blows wherever it goes, wherever it pleases. You hear a sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. You just kind of see the effects of it. So how do I know He's in me? Well, let's keep reading. He's given us His Spirit, and verse 14 and 15 says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Listen, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Now, how do we know that you've been given the Holy Spirit? How do you know that you have received the Holy Spirit? Not because you have some mechanism that causes you to to feel His impulses, not because you hear voices, not because you feel promptings. We know that we've been given the Spirit because we believe. Because we believe the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And we confess, we testify that Jesus is the Son of God. That takes us back to Romans 10, uh, verse 9, doesn't it? Where Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and and, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, it is your belief in the gospel that is evidence of the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you couldn't know that. You couldn't accept that apart from the Spirit. That's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't even say that. No one can say, no one can testify, no one can confess, no one can acknowledge, no one can truly believe that Jesus is Lord, that He is the Son of God without the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So this morning, listen, if you're understanding what we're talking about this morning, you've got the Spirit. You've got the Spirit. Isn't that encouraging? Sinners are dead in trespasses and sin. They're blind They have no capacity. All of this is foolishness to them. They can't know God on their own. God is not known by human wisdom. God is not known by human intelligence. How do I know that the Spirit of God has taken up residence in me? Because I believe. Because I believe what can only be believed if it is revealed by God. And we have seen and testified, John says there in verse 14, that the Father has sent His Son. John could say that from his own personal experience. He was there. He saw. He touched. He bore witness that the Father had sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But even he, even John, would not have believed that if the Holy Spirit had not opened his eyes. So how do you know that you have the Spirit? Because you believe the gospel. Because as the song goes, I have decided (laughs) to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Because we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, he says, and all that entails, God lives us 
It lives in us, and we in him. <clears throat> and that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and it's then, and then it's only because the Holy Spirit in us that we know God's love. All these things are connected. Verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So how do I know I'm a Christian? Because God gave me his spirit. That's what scripture says, and he only gives his spirit to those that are his. He only takes up residence in those who are his. And how do I know he gave me that spirit? Because I believe. Well, what do I believe? I, I believe the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And I confess that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, I believe the gospel, which I can't believe apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And not only do I believe the gospel, but I've come to know and believe that all of this is because of the love which God has for me. I have come to understand the eternal love of God for us. God is love. That's why He, the Father, sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It's all about His love. Ephesians 2.4, right? Because of God's great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. That's why John says with absolute assurance in, in verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So love is that moral test that John is laying out for us. Do you love? Do you love? God loves. And if we have God living in us by His Holy Spirit, then we love. Now, in the midst of all this perfect love and, and love being perfected in us, John also has also weaved in a doctrinal test. I don't know if you caught, caught it or not. Because he, he, he just kind of messes all the way through his letter with doctrinal tests and, and moral tests. You see, in order for, for this perfect love to take effect in our life, we have to understand God the Father to be who He is and God the Son to be who He is. We have to understand that He is the Savior of the world and therefore that people need to be saved from sin. We have to confess that Jesus is not a man, but rather is a Son of God, and that God abides in Him and He in God, and that He is inseparable from God, and believe that God authored this whole thing out of the depth of His great love for us, and that it's a matter of faith and not works. It's all there. It's amazing how John weaves in all of this, the doctrinal stuff and the theology in the midst of this. But in the end, verse 16 tells us that the proof in the pudding is love. It's love. We're going to know that we live in God and God lives in us because we live in love. We love God. We love Christ. We don't love the world system. But we do, however, love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's all because of this incredible, perfect love that He has poured into us. But even that should spill over so that we, like God, even love our enemies. Oh, pastor, wishing you weren't going there. If you love your enemies, Jesus said, then you are children of God. Because God loves His enemies too. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, but I tell you, <laughs> love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you. Why? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see, that's what God's children do. They love their enemies as well. What about you? Do you love your enemies? Oh, pastor, I don't have any enemies. Not an issue. Ah, but we treat people that way sometimes, don't we? (laughs) How do we treat those who irritate us? What are the words and gestures when we use towards that idiot and jerk that cut me off on the highway? Or the person with strange accent, customer service on the telephone that just doesn't get it. Speaking from experience from last week. Yet we give ourselves a pass on the highway, don't we? When we, It's just a mistake. It's my blind spot. I didn't see him. I had something else on mine, and we give ourselves a pass. But we're so quick to react to those that irritate us. What about that irritating neighbor? Oh, my goodness. What kind of rant do we go into? Again, I'm preaching to myself about this guy that was on the phone. In those kinds of situations, what kind of language do I use when nobody else is around or maybe we think no one's listening? Do we have our favorite expletives or even swear words that we use in private? Is that pleasing to God? Are we acting in perfect love? After all, He loved us when we were His enemies, did He not? Romans 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But that's not all. He goes a step further in verse 10, While we were God's enemies, that's even stronger, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. Why? Because He exercised His perfect love towards us. I am so glad that He did. I'm so glad that he did. So when you look at your own life and you ask the question, am I a Christian? The answer is you are if you have the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I know I have the Holy Spirit? Do you understand and believe the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ? And that God sent his son to be the savior of the world? Do you understand and believe that? Then you know the Holy Spirit's in you. And if you understand and believe that, you also understand that God did this out of love because God is love, and therefore you, who are God's, belong to God, let's put it that way, you are characterized then by love. And you'll love the way God loves. You'll love God as God loves within the Trinity. Pastor, I... (laughs) a hard time understanding that whole trinity thing remember we mentioned back in genesis when god said let us make man in our in our image what does that mean but if i'm not understanding this trinity does that mean i'm disqualified does that mean i'm not a christian no that just means that there are some of those concepts in scripture that we just can't get have a full grasp of. 
Remember what God said way back in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth. How far is that? Can't measure that one. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You're not going to understand everything. Impossible. We have this amazing mind, but we use, what, only 10%, maybe less? I believe. (laughs) Help my unbelief, right? I believe because I believe God's word to be true and because he said it. But in my human finiteness, I'm struggling to comprehend some of these topics. Our prayer should be, Holy Spirit, help me understand better. Remember the story back in Mark chapter 9 where man brought his son to Jesus, his son who had an evil spirit? And right in front of Jesus, it, it tells us that the boy fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how, how, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire and water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I wonder if Jesus chuckled when he says, if you can. Seriously, you're asking me that? If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Folks, that's the prayer that we ought to be praying when we're struggling with a concept in Scripture. We shouldn't go to doubting our salvation. I do believe because you've said it and it's written in black and white in your word and I I believe that's the truth. Help me overcome my uh, unbelief. I, I'm just having a hard time understanding it all and, and, and figuring out how, how that all works. Give me clarity. The topic of the Trinity is important. And I'm not downplaying that. It's huge. But understanding that is not the prerequisite for being saved. Nor are other things in the Bible that we might not have a full grasp on. John says in verse 15 here of our passage, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in Him. Done deal. Done deal. And what's the proof of that? That you understand the Trinity? Or do you understand some of these other massive concepts? No, it's only that you love the way God loves. That's the proof. You will love the Son of God as the Father loves the Son, and you will love those who belong to Him, and you'll even love enemies, even love enemies the way God does. And so he writes in verse 16, we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. What does that mean, whoever lives in love? Lives in God. The word that's translated lives is, is fascinating. It's meno, to remain in, to abide in. We sang two songs about abiding, to live in. That's a present continuous verb form. 
In other words, as God is love, we are to be living in and expressing that love in the same way continually, every day, in every situation. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. And now these three remain. That's a great love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13, now these three remain. Same word, meno, to remain, to abide, to live continuously. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because God is love. This is the behavioral test John is putting there before us. This is the moral test of our salvation. When you look at your life, is that what you see? Maybe more importantly, is that what others see? The fifth reason we are commanded to love one another is because love is our confidence in judgment. This is fascinating. We find that in verse 17. This is how love is made perfect among us, referring back to what the Holy Spirit has done in us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Listen, when the Holy Spirit has done His work and the eyes of our understanding have been opened and we've been enlightened and our dead heart has been awakened, and our blind eyes have been made to see, and we've, we've come out of the darkness into light. And the Holy Spirit has caused us to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God comes and takes up residence in our life. And our life is flooded with His love going in all directions the same way that God's love goes. When that kind of perfected love is in us, John says we will have confidence looking ahead to the day of judgment. You see, the confidence that we have in the upcoming day of judgment, and it is upcoming, it's coming, it comes not just from what we believe theologically in our head, but we have confidence because we see the results of a transformed heart that exudes the perfect love of God. Are you sure you're going to heaven? Are you confident of that? And what's your confidence based on? There's a lot of people out there that feel confident because they go to church, because they don't do this, they don't do that. They say, I, I, I love Jesus. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> it's a good start. But does that translate to sacrificially loving your wife? Or submissively loving your husband? Does that translate to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they have differing views about different things? Does that translate to loving your neighbor as yourself? That's the second greatest commandment, isn't it? Love your neighbor? Does that translate to loving your enemies? That's the proof. That's the confidence. What does your everyday life look like for you? Who's in control? Back in chapter 2, verse 28 of, of this letter, John says, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. How do we continue in Him? By loving John's pointing out that we can live our life with, with no fear, 
not never fearing the coming of Jesus Christ, never fearing standing before the throne of God, standing before the judgment seat. In fact, it says here in verse 17, you may have confidence. The word means free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, assurance. That's why John's writing this whole letter. But it should never be a false sense of confidence or boldness. John says, compare yourself. It's another reason why he's letter, uh, writing this letter. Here's all these tests. Here's what shows. Compare yourself honestly with what I've been laying down here in this letter, John says. Don't give yourself any excuses. We're, <laughs> we're good at that, aren't we? As soon as we give ourselves an excuse, we fail the test. When we give ourselves excuses, our life is not where it ought to be. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. He didn't say look at others and test them. (laughs) That's easy. Test yourselves. He says, "Do do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. What test? Everything that John is laying out here in his letter. And I trust, Paul goes on to say, that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Why can we have confidence? Look at verse 17 again, particularly at the end. This is how love is made complete among us, so we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Wow. In this world, we are like Jesus. The Greek literally said, as he is, so are we in this world. Are you? So how is Jesus? In Jesus, love is absolutely perfect. Obedience is absolutely perfected in him. Righteousness is absolutely perfected in him. And that's who we are because we have Jesus living in us. How incredible is it? that you can actually go to the judgment seat and stand there as confident as Jesus. Because in reality, we've been covered with his righteousness. It's so cool. Jesus is God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And if we have Jesus living in us and living through us, We, too, are his beloved in whom he is well pleased. How cool is that? That's what John told us in in chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. And verse 18 goes on to explain there is no fear in love. If we love like this, if we love in this perfect love, this mature, complete love, that, that there's no fear. We don't need to fear the judgment. We don't need to fear the return of Christ. In fact, we long for it. We say, as John said, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come quickly. I can't wait. And when we get there, we're going to be received as the children of God, literally as brothers and sisters of Jesus, who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. So John says, perfect love does what? Perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. If you're looking ahead to the judgment and all you can do is fear punishment, you've got a problem. 
Because the one who fears, John says, the end of verse 18, is not made perfect in love. They're the ones who are going to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, I, I've done this for you, and I've done this for you, and I was really faithful here, and, I, and I, I've done all these things, I've been good, and Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. A shocking, shocking, sad day that's going to be. You know, the saint, the regular churchgoer who fears Christ's return may not be a saint at all. But if you're looking forward to Christ's return, if you're loving the way God expects you to love, you can have confidence that the Holy Spirit is living in you and He has given you full salvation. Oh, that will be glory. Glory for me, glory for me. Old song. When by His grace I shall look on His face. Are you looking forward to the day that you're going to look on His face? No fear? That'll be glory for me. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have what? Long for his appearance. Are we longing for his appearance, folks? God wants all his children to live in confidence. And then finally and quickly, we are to love because, number six, love is only reasonable. <laughs> Simple. This kind of sums up everything. In verse 19, it says, We love because He first loved us. We've already talked about that a little bit. We didn't start out loving Him. That was impossible. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were in a very dark and hopeless place. We were in a condition deserving of wrath. We were in the darkness, and darkness cannot approach light. Light approaches darkness, and God is light. So God first loved us, but because of his great love for us, right? God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ when we were dead in transgressions, even when we were in that dark place. God loved us. You know, the phrase in Greek, made us alive with Christ, literally means to reanimate conjointly with to reanimate conjointly with. Our spirits were dead. There was no life in our spirits to be able to communicate with the Holy Spirit. But just as God reanimated Christ after He had literally died, He too, because of His great love for us, reanimated our spirits with Christ conjointly. Reanimated conjointly with Christ so we can live in Him and He in us. We love because He first loved us. We love because it is characteristic of Christians to love because God has poured out his love into our hearts. And that's the key. His eternal sovereign love was granted to us. Then he, as he closes, he says in verse 20, whoever claims to love God, whoever says, hey, I, I, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. John doesn't pull any punches here. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You can't claim to love the invisible God and not love the people in whom God resides. John's just pointing out the absurd, absurdity of that concept. It doesn't jive, as I used to say. 
So it's only reasonable then to say true believers are characterized by loving the way God loves, with sacrificial, selfless love. And then John closes with the, the whole chapter with a command, just as he began it here in verse 21. And he has given us this command. Not mine, John says, this is God's command. He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. One author described it like this. It's a, it's a kind of unrequited love, wanting nothing in return, an unconditional love that accepts and forgives, a vicarious love that bears the pain of others, a self-giving love that practices sacrifice, and a righteous love that tolerates no sin. This love is not an emotion. It's not, not a feeling that we express when we feel like it. There's that ki- there is that kind of love, and it, it's, it's a wonderful kind of love. There's that wonderful love that a husband has for a wife that they they can share and that family members can share and children share with their parents and and friends can share with friends. But John's not talking about any of those human loves which are all incidentally augmented when we have the perfect love of God in us as well. But John's talking about this kind of love that extends towards anybody who has a need, particularly those in the family of God. It is a perfect kind of love. Different love than the world's kind of love is a whole, complete love, love to the max, perfect love, which is the essence of God. It's manifested in Christ in his sacrifice for us. It's our testimony to others of the life of Christ in us. It's the assurance of our salvation. It's our confidence in judgment, and it's only reasonable Because you could never truly have the love of God in you and not love others with that love. Perfect love is a mark of a true believer and gives us that certainty that we live in God. Amen? Father, thank you. (laughs) Thank you that you first loved us. We would be lost. We would be on our way to hell. There's no reason why you loved us, except that you love us. You, re- you created us, and you despise what happened to us as a human race way back in Genesis. And ever since then, you have put in a plan to redeem us. A plan so overwhelming and magnificent and, and, and just glorifying It's hard for us to even imagine how you came up with that to give your own son for us. While we were still sinners, (laughs) Christ died for us because of your great love. Father, thank you. I pray that that will not just be a theoretical, theological truth that we believe in your heart. Yeah, I, I believe that, but as we step out of this church today, as we go home, as we deal with neighbors, as we deal with the people on the road, as we deal with people on the phone, as we deal with grocery people, whatever it is, Father, I pray that that will be something new, maybe, that your Holy Spirit is going to empower us to do, is to show them that perfect love of God. And they'll look at us and say, Wow, where did that come from? I don't understand that. And perhaps those would be the opportunities that uh, they, people will ask, why, why, why are you acting this way? And we say, can say it's because God first loved us and he loves you as well. Father, do a new work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Will you stand, please?